For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. This is what should be accomplished by the one who is wise, who seeks the good and has obtained peace. Let one be strenuous, upright, and sincere, without pride, easily contented, and joyous. Let one not be submerged by the things of the world. Let one not take upon oneself the burden of riches. Let one's senses be controlled. Let one be wise but not puffed up, and let one not desire great possessions even for one's family. Let one do nothing that is mean or that the wise would reprove. May all beings be happy. May they be joyous and live in safety. All living beings, whether weak or strong, in higher, middle, or lower realms of existence, small or great, visible or invisible, near or far, born or to be born, may all beings be happy. Let no one deceive another, nor despise any being in any state. Let none by anger or hatred wish harm to another. Even as a mother at the risk of her life watches over and protects her only child, so with a boundless mind should one cherish all living things, suffusing love over the entire world, above, below, and all around without limit. So let one cultivate an infinite goodwill towards the whole world. Standing or walking, sitting or lying down during all one's waking hours, let one practice the way with gratitude, not holding to fixed views, endowed with insight, Freed from sense appetites, one who achieves the way will be freed from the duality of birth and death. May all awakened beings extend with true compassion their luminous mirror wisdom. With full awareness, we have chanted the Metta Sutta. We dedicate this merit to... Our original ancestor in India, great teacher Shakyamuni Buddha, our first woman ancestor, great teacher Maha Prajapati, our first ancestor in China, great teacher Bodhidharma, our first ancestor in Japan, great teacher Ehei Dogen, our first ancestor in America, great teacher Shodaku Shinryu, the perfect wisdom Bodhisattva Manjushri. To the well-being of all those afflicted with ills and to peace pervading for all peoples of the world, Gratefully, we offer this virtue to all beings, all Buddhas throughout space and time, all honored ones, bodhisattvas, mahasattvas, wisdom beyond wisdom, mahaprajna. Good evening, everyone. I hope uh, everyone is enjoying early springtime in Chicago 
or wherever you are. Uh, I always think spring is uh, one way to be reminded of impermanence because everything is constantly changing and it's it's pretty impossible to ignore it. Um, I don't I don't hate winter, but I love the coming of spring. It, it just feels especially blissful this year because it's coming at the same time as uh, the easing of some of the painful restrictions we've all lived with for more than a year. And also in the spirit of the season, happy Buddha's birthday, April 8th, coming up in a couple of days. Um, so this talk uh, is about my uh, recent discovery, uh, maybe I should say belated, <laughs> of uh, the possibilities, or some of the possibilities of the spiritual practice of haiku which uh, you probably know is a Japanese form of poetry. Uh, it, it's also a talk about nature and, and our deep connections uh, to the rest of the planet. Um, I've been practicing with haiku recently, and, and I'm finding it to be a rewarding practice. And to tell you the truth, I was a little surprised uh, to discover that. Uh, but it's one of several surprising discoveries I've made during this extraordinary year in our lives. Um, as as uh, we all have during this past year of isolation and uh, I don't know what to call it, like lifestyle disruption, I've been pushed to re-examine and reconsider how I spend my precious time. I'm, uh, I'm retired and I live alone. So when COVID hit, I, I, I wasn't one of those people that was struggling with children, uh, managing their time in school and so forth, or work responsibilities, as a lot of people were. But, but I did have some challenges. Uh, last April, I, I moved my household after uh, 25 years in one place, and it was difficult. Uh, because I, I decided on this move before the pandemic emerged, uh, and I already knew it was going to be a huge disturbance. And of course, COVID made it far worse than I could have imagined. And actually, I was literally stuck without a home for a short while. And uh, I felt unmoored, uh, afraid. And of course, I uh, I did find a place to live, but I was pretty much on my own. I mean, we were all so isolated. Uh, but many of my familiar comforts and responsibilities uh, were suddenly gone. There was no Zendo or Sashin. There were no Tai Chi classes. There was no swimming pool or health club. There were no choirs. I mean, choirs were declared particularly dangerous, which I, I took personally. It really hurt. Uh, there was no way to go to the movies, and the Forest Reserve stewardship days that I spent a lot of my free time on were canceled for months. And I had moved away from the beautiful garden that I had created over decades, and all my planned trips were scratched or postponed indefinitely. So in some ways, I felt as if I was like reinventing my life all over again. And uh, 
uh, you know, that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but it was kind of exhilarating. And uh, every day pre presented fresh choices. I had very few people to answer to. <laughs> that was interesting. Um, I, I even stopped doing Zazen for a while after, you know, decades of daily sitting. Um, I mean, I, don't worry, I got back to it, but um, I gained weight. I became tidy, uh, at least a lot tidier than I'd ever been in my life. I think that was about wanting control. So I was considering my choices, you know, with this, this thing of, okay, you know, what am I going to do with my precious time? And um, some seemingly random ideas came into my head about new things I wanted to investigate to a second opportunity. Uh, and these weren't things I'd always longed to do. You know, people have these things like from when they were young and always want to be a baseball player or whatever. These were like de novo inspirations. Uh, for example, I thought it would be fun to raise orchids. There's one behind me. Uh, it, it wasn't related to conservation, not like orchids in the prairie, which I've, I've done, but this is like all about beauty and learning something completely new. And I, I joined the Orchid Society. Of course, there were no meetings because, you know, there were no meetings and the Botanic Garden was closed. But anyway, you know, uh, that's for another Dharma talk, but it was it's an interesting project. So... <clears throat> I decided to take a poetry class. I had never taken a poetry class in my entire life. And I uh, I went to the Poetry Foundation website. You, you may know about the Poetry Foundation. It's a wonderful institution. It was founded in 1941 by a woman named Harriet Monroe. Uh, she um, the, uh, invented this magazine, Poetry Magazine, which has been published consistently since 1941, so what is that, like 80 years? Um, and then in 2003, they got a $100 million gift out of the blue from uh, a woman named Ruth Lilly, because somehow she uh, wanted to enhance poetry in the United States. So they built this building, and they have all these free classes, and they send you books, and they're amazing. And... Uh, uh, so I signed up for all these classes on writing poetry and every, every week you learn a new form. So I wrote tonkas and pantoums and ekphrastic poems and so forth. I, I doubt I'll ever write a successful sonnet, but anyway, um, this is sort of wholesome pandemic activity. And then in February, uh, so six or seven weeks ago, I learned about this three-day workshop on haiku hosted by the Upaya Institute in, in Santa Fe. And there were four teachers, Joan Halifax, who's the founder of uh, Upaya, Natalie Goldberg, uh, who has written many books on writing as a spiritual practice and have actually taken classes with her in the past but she has a new book called haiku called three simple lines Kaz Tanahashi who I had met briefly uh, when he did a weekend workshop on uh, painting and calligraphy at ancient dragon uh, 
number of years ago. He's this amazing man. He collaborates with Tygen on translations and other things. And we had many of his paintings in our um, Zendo uh, on Irving Park. And the fourth guy was uh, Clark Strand, who I had never heard of, but um, he's a superstar in the haiku Zen world. And he wrote this famous book about haiku as a spiritual practice uh, published in 1997 called Seeds from a Birch Tree. It's out of print, but I, I got it from the library. And uh, and the price of the workshop was attractive. It was whatever you wanted to donate. <laughs> so I signed up. Along with a thousand other people, I found out from all over the world. And um, I'll tell you a little bit about what I learned in that workshop. But the main point was that I was completely engaged by this practice, which seemed to connect Three of the most important things in my life, um, nature, Zen, and art. And at the end of the three days, uh, I made this rash commitment to myself uh, to do Heiko every day for a year, um, for like half an hour or whatever, half an hour minimum, whatever. You know, you make your own rules for these commitments. And uh, I just was... Wanted to see if, you know, if it would be a good thing to add to my life. So this talk is kind of an extension of that commitment, as I'll explain in a minute or so. So I can't stress enough how little I knew about haiku going into this three-day workshop. I knew that the form was three lines, uh, five syllables, seven syllables, five syllables. So 17 syllables total in three lines. And that the subject of haiku were more or less related to nature. And it turns out that's actually most of what you need to know in order to start out to write haiku, which is kind of like saying zazen is just sitting, right? Uh, just shut up and sit down, and that's all you need to know. But, and I don't disagree with that, but of course, there's a lot more to talk about. Talk about. Um, so according to Clark Strand, uh, haiku is the one poetic form in all of literature that concerns itself primarily with nature, that makes nature a spiritual path. So this framing of it really hooked me. That That's like plugged into everything by my worldview. Um, I mean, for those of you who don't know me, I know most of you. Hi, Alex. <laughs> seen you for a while. Uh, I'll share. I've spent a large portion of my professional and personal life in, in nature studies. It's and nature for me is sort of not is sort of inextricable from my spiritual path. But for writing haiku, there's really no science background that you need. In fact, it you. It could be an obstacle if you know if you sort of have these technical explanations for the for these natural phenomena that you're seeing. But but one of the things that they say about haiku is that beginners write excellent haiku for a short time, and then they write terrible or mediocre haiku for a long time <laughs> until eventually they master the form and write 
good haiku again. So it's like a familiar idea, right? Beginner's mind. It's like familiar to any sort of Zen student. So, and then this other appealing thing I, I, I like about haiku is like haiku can be grasped all at once. I mean, it's only 17 syllables. I, I think part of my early resistance to studying poetry is that I had this notion that poems are difficult to understand. But having said that, uh, you know, there's more to what you grasp immediately and reading them over and over again and memorizing them or absorbing them, you know, results in a, a much deeper experience. But I just want to say my primary interest was not in reading haiku or reading these beautiful ancient Japanese haiku by Basho and Isa and Shiki. I find them very beautiful. But I was mostly interested in what would happen if I tried to write haiku. I I just wanted to know if it would help me more or feel more or seek more sincerely or something. I don't I, I, I didn't have it really exactly honed in on, but I mean I do like reading haiku and uh, haiku and I'm gonna read some, we'll read some, but I mean I, the practice I'm talking about is writing. So in the Upaya workshop we're given what was called season words. And we're told to write as many haiku as possible without judging them. Just write them, write them, write them. You judge later or you edit later. So season words are words that are connected to a particular season. Like, for example, icicle for winter or acorn for fall. And uh, there are thousands of these season words in Japanese. And as I understand it, and Tiger probably knows this much better than I, a lot of them are untranslatable. We just don't have these concepts in our language, but I don't have a way of understanding that. Anyway, our workshop was held in mid-February, so we were given icicle as a winter season word and inchworm, how's that, for a spring season word. Do you know what an inchworm is this little worm that sort of crawls by going up and down and moving up and down and moving anyway not in our regular vocabulary but anyway here's one I wrote returning bird song sugar maple icicle dripping so sweetly returning bird song sugar maple icicle dripping so sweetly so I base this on an experience I had on a bird walk on a warmish day in February. We were uh, we were looking for early spring migrating birds, like red-winged blackbirds. We were listening uh, for their songs because that's the way you can find birds. And we we're standing on the trail. We noticed this tree with a small icicle uh, sort of dripping. And it was odd because there wasn't, any other ice around that day and then we realized 
it was a sugar maple tree and that the sugar maple tree had oozed some sap out, which had frozen into an icicle and that the icicle was melting. So it's a really cool thing. So I wrote this haiku, returning bird song, sugar maple icicle dripping so sweetly. So it's an example of how a nature experience can get translated into a haiku. So Clark Strand says, a haiku represents one event from life happening now. Three simple rules, form, season, and present mind. So haiku comes from direct experience, sort of real events, uh, but it's not just description. It has sort of a creative observation. Uh, it's it's I, I think of it as sort of like finding a little awakening experience in a dripping icicle on a sugar maple tree. It's like looking at, at a little tiny piece of truth that you notice because you're paying attention. Um, so uh, the imagery of the poem shows the reader something and then the observation sort of tells them what you want to say about it. So Clark Strand says, a good haiku is not a photograph, but a poem. Okay, so here's another example of one of mine. I'm going to get to Basho later. I'll start with, uh, I don't want to follow him. I'll proceed. Uh, okay. I see waters thaw. Turtles crowd on floating log. Sunshine equals hope. So it's very literal. The turtles are turtles. They're not a metaphor. And the sunshine is hope, quite literally, because the warmth wakes the turtles up. You know, they're, they've been hibernating all winter. And... Um, so icy waters thaw, turtles crowd on floating log, sunshine equals hope, drawn from direct experience. So I'm going to shift gears here for a minute um, and talk about another aspect of haiku that's similar to our Zen practice, the three treasures, um, Buddha Dharma Sangha, Sangha, being the community of, of practitioners. So we practice meditation together in community. It's, it's an important part of our practice. Haiku practice is also done in community. And a very common way this is done is through this a small group of practitioners. Usually it's like a half a dozen to maybe a couple dozen people that meet regularly and they share their work with each other. And I learned, I had no idea, there are thousands and thousands of haiku groups all over the world. Um, I mean, in Japan, yes, but also in Europe, in Asia, in U.S., I mean, North America and so forth. Uh, so, you know, I tried to find Chicago haiku groups. There are some. None of none, No one's meeting in person these days, but I joined a couple of Facebook haiku groups they're, they're like way too big. And of course, they're on a screen, not in person. But even with those drawbacks, I mean, I could see really see the value of practicing with community because 
reading and responding to haiku by many people written on the same season word is mind stretching. <laughs> uh, you know, a thousand people writing about icicles. Oh my goodness. I never conceived of <laughs> icicles in so many amazing ways. Um, and then also receiving responses to what I write and put out there is, um, is instructive. Um, so, I mean, what they say is that haiku is a joint undertaking between the poet and the reader. And that, that, is, that is a lovely idea. So here's the deal. If you are in any way interested in uh, dipping your toes into these uh, haiku waters, I have an invitation for you. So on two different dates in April, uh, Saturday the 17th and uh, Wednesday the 28th, I'm going to lead a couple of springtime nature walks. Uh, The 17th would be at Montrose Beach from 8 to 10 in the morning, and the 28th would be at Horner Park at Montrose in California between 7 and 8 in the morning. And we're going to just walk and um, in relative silence, but not complete silence, and just sort of enjoy what other mother, whatever Mother Nature has to offer that morning, and we'll carry notepads with us or sketch pads or maybe even cameras, and not write poetry while we walk but just take notes about what we're seeing sketch sketch either verbally or graphically and i'll uh provide a season word or two and and then participants will be invited to write haiku afterwards at home and uh, share them with the, the rest of us if if they wish and um so that might be fun and um we might have a little uh Haiku Sangha. Now, I have a few more things to mention. And so I'll put those on the, uh, you don't have to write those dates down. If you're interested, we'll put them on the calendar. But I, I do uh, want people to register because we don't want the group to be bigger than, say, a dozen or so. It'll get too uh, messy. Okay, I just wanted to read you some uh, some other haiku. And I'm I'm so far from being a haiku scholar, but I just wanted to share um, some of the stars of the haiku uh, world. Among the most revered and famous Japanese haiku poets from the past, so now we're talking about Basho, his dates are 1644 to 1694, and his most famous poem, so if you only have heard one haiku in your entire life it's probably this one although who knows what translation you've there's so many translations this is one of my favorite translations uh an old silent pond a frog jumps into the pond splashed silence again an old silent pond a frog jumps into the pond, splash, silence again. I'll read one more Basho. Uh, Gyoshin, would you like to hear how that sounds in Japanese? Oh, my goodness. So, yes, 
Because it would be 575. The translations don't have the right syllable count, but who, yeah. I mean, whatever. Well, partly haiku is different in English and in, in Sino-Japanese because there's a lot more information you can get into 17 syllables in, in Japanese, but it doesn't matter. So that po- that's, that's one, you know, one of the most famous. It probably is the most famous haiku. Yeah. So in Japanese, it's furuike-ya, kawazu tobi komo, mizu no oto. One more time. Furuike-ya, kawazu tobi komo, mizu no oto. Beautiful. Okay, I'll do one more basha. Maybe Tiger will know this one too. Autumn moonlight. A worm digs silently into the chestnut. Autumn moonlight. A worm digs silently into the chestnut. I just find that so beautiful. Um... I'm going to go chronologically, so uh, and I only hit the highlights. There are so many spectacularly uh, famous and uh, wonderful Japanese haiku poets, but Busan states are 1716 to 1784. Here's a quickie, Busan. Ah, grief and sadness. The fishing line trembles in the autumn breeze. You notice all of these have season references, although the season word, who knows which one it is, it's probably autumn breeze. Ah, grief and sadness, the fishing line trembles in the autumn breeze. And then uh, sort of overlapping with him is Isa. Um, He wrote this one at age six. Come play with me. You little sparrow, motherless sparrow. He says mother died when he was three, and he wrote this gorgeous haiku when he was six about a motherless sparrow. Oh. <laughs> like, uh, here's another fabulous Isawan. Go ahead, make love, make love, summer cicadas. <laughs> <laughs> So we're going to have our 17-year cicada return in two years. So we can, we'll, we'll do this uh, cicada poem then. Uh, okay, here's one, one more from Isa, uh, and then I'll go to the next one. First lightning bug this year. Why do you turn away? It's me, Isa. <laughs> Lovely. Okay, and then Shiki, 1867 to 1902. After killing a spider, how lonely I feel in the cold of night. After killing a spider, how lonely I feel in the cold of night. And then there's this uh, this one. Uh, again from Shiki, uh, 1867-1902, so he entered the 20th century. The high priest relieved his noble bowels in a desolate field. <laughs> um, so, so Shiki was famous for his deathbed poems, which are quite um, extraordinary. Here's, here's one. 
he had, he had a lot of illness in his life. The gourd flowers bloom, but look, here lies phlegm stuffed Buddha. The gourd flowers bloom, but look, here lies phlegm stuffed Buddha. So haiku is not an art form that's uh, sort of uh, restricted to old Japanese men. Um, there have always been female practitioners uh, from the time of Basho and before. Uh, and recently in Japan, I discovered there are some female haiku superstars, like everyone in Japan knows them. And their topics are very contemporary. There's a woman named Mayazumi Madoka. She was born in 1965. And uh, she's the editor of a haiku magazine for women called Gekon Hepuban. And Hepuban refers to Audrey Hepburn because this is a magazine for women who aspire to live as freely as Holly Golightly in Breakfast at Tiffany's. <laughs> so here's one of uh, Mayuzumi Madoka's. A shooting star, again, it's translated from Japanese. A shooting star in love with someone not knowing where it will lead me. A shooting star in love with someone, not knowing where it will lead me. And another contemporary woman, Momoko Kuroda, uh, born in 1938. An early rising woman pilgrim. So that's who I am. Or an early rising woman pilgrim. So that's who I am. Um, so uh, Mitsu Suzuki, who is the wife of Shudrio Suzuki and who outlived him by 45 years, uh, she lived to 101, and she started writing haiku in 1970. Now, Suzuki Roshi died in 1971, so most of her haiku was written after he was Gone, but she's had at least two books published, and one was uh, 100 Haiku Poems in Honor of Her 100th Birthday. Uh, and here's, here's one of hers. She also wrote in Japanese, so this is an English translation. Fresh green woods. Everyone returns to the great earth. Fresh green woods. Everyone returns to the great earth. That's just, I just find that gorgeous. And uh, I'll just say there were a lot of non-Japanese writers have seriously delved into haiku. Uh, I was so surprised to know that Richard Wright, the author of Invisible Man and many other well-regarded books, spent the last 18 months of his life, he was living in Paris, writing haiku almost exclusively. His last book is called Haiku, The Last Poems of an American Icon. And he wrote in English, of course. And uh, here's a favorite of Richard Wright of mine. Um, it was so silent that the silence protested with one lone bird cry. It was so silent that the silence protested with one lone bird cry. 
There's another Richard Wright. He's such a good writer. The ocean in June, inhaling and exhaling, but never speaking. The ocean in June, inhaling and exhaling, but never speaking. So if you're thinking of writing haiku, I'm going to give you six tips from Natalie Goldberg. (laughs) And then you can uh, go home and do your homework. So here's Natalie Goldberg's six tips. One, let go and enter what is around you. Don't look for haiku. Let it write itself at you. So let go and enter what is around you. So just like experience, right? Two, use an unfocused gaze to see and hear and smell what is not familiar. What else is also there? I love this. And it's like we walk through the world and we just see the same stuff that we're used to seeing. We just focus on what's familiar to us. Use an unfocused gaze, much as when we're doing zazen, we use an unfocused gaze to hear and smell and see what's not familiar. That's wonderful advice. Three, notice connections between yourself and a being or a feeling or a moment. Notice connections. Four, write it down immediately. Carry a small pad everywhere. So not necessarily write the final haiku. That's not the point. Just like whatever it is that you notice, write it down immediately because you'll forget it. I know I always forget it. Five, put down every line you think of and then edit later. So let yourself, uh, I've heard people call this a vomit draft. You know, put down whatever comes into your head and then later you can refine. And then last, six, revise by removing everything unnecessary. Ask yourself if you feel the moment when you read it. And then I'm going to end with a poem by Mitsu Suzuki. I love this. She wrote, learning from haiku, sustained by haiku, this path of do. Learning from haiku, sustained by haiku, this path of do. D-E-W. Thank you. Um, that was fun. I like doing that. <laughs> uh, so what do you think? Anybody, any takers on the walks? Oh, yay. Alex, are you in town? Excellent. Oh, Ian. All right. Great. And if you can't come to our walks, you know, you could take your own walk and then also send us your haikus and we can share them. We, you know, if you want to do it and you're like, you're not around or the time doesn't work for you, I'll send you the season words and you can take your own walk. And then whenever we share them, should we share them by Zoom or should we share them by email? I'll figure that out. Uh, And then we'll just see what we get. Maybe one of you will get bitten by the bug. (laughs) Maybe all of you will. Hey, Jerry, I didn't see you there. Nice to see you. (laughs) So, Ed Ed Donnelly, you know, the, the last... 
the last thing that I did, the last event that I did before the uh, pandemic didn't let us go anywhere, Ed and I went to the Poetry Foundation and we heard a reading of poetry. Remember that, Ed? Are you there? I only yes, it was, it was it was their it was their last in person presentation actually. Yes, foundation, I think. Yes, and do you remember who it was? Um, well, I remember there was a full moon that night. Yes, it was. And <laughs> it we was home together. Yeah, you drove me home. Yes, it was. Um, see, at my age, I always forget everyone's name. It's that wonderful poet who's a San Francisco Zen Center uh, student for many years. And um, she had a new book out. Who am I thinking of, uh, Tygen? I can't remember her name. I'm sorry. Jane, Jane Hirschfield. Jane Hirschfield, yeah. We heard her. And then like two days later, the whole world shut down. <laughs> so that was great. She's written a lot of haiku, actually, as well. She's a wonderful poet. Yeah, she was lovely. I'll shut up now and listen. I could share another Basho poem, which is kind of like the Richard Wright haiku that you that you uh, read. Shizu kasaya, iwani. Wait, I'm sorry. Uh, um, such stillness piercing into the rock cicada shrill and I have a book of uh, Suzuki Sensei Suzuki Roshi's widow uh, I think it's called Temple Dusk a a book of her haiku in English I'm going to see if I can find it in the other room I'll be back Okay. Yeah, I think she has at least two. That I think that one was push, published earlier, and then the there was one published uh, right near the end of her life in honor of her hundredth birthday because she lived to a hundred and one, I think. She was also a um, tea ceremony master, so a lot of her, uh, a lot of the haikus that I've seen of hers. Uh, related to tea ceremony, which I don't know that much about. Wade. Um, I'd be curious to hear more about how you view it as a spiritual practice, like explicitly how this is connected to your your Zen practice, other than, um, I don't know. Yeah, just curious to hear more about that. Well, so that's a that's a great way of asking the question. And so I thought I thought about talking more about that. And then as soon as I started writing about it, it ended up being the whole talk and sounded so boring. But um, <laughs> it's like self-absorbed. I'm not saying you're asking a boring question. I'm saying it's hard to talk about it without going blah 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 a lot. Um, you know, in some ways, it's a spiritual practice the same way washing dishes is a spiritual practice when you're paying attention. Uh, and, you know, I do a lot of walking anyway, and I I would definitely call that a spiritual practice. It's like spiritual practice label. I mean, 
it's a little slippery. So um, I guess the best I can say is, or the best I can express it is, um, you know, I'm sitting in this zendo for endless day after day and there's no windows and, you know, it's dark and it's good, but I feel disconnected sometimes from, I just like want to go outside or go, I always did my uh, kinhin in the vestibule where I could see the sun, you know, <laughs> it's like, it's, it's like, I'm not being very articulate here, but it's like a, it seems like a direct uh, avenue to opening my mind through nature in addition to opening my mind by sitting still on a cushion. You know, it, it it's like an opening mind thing. If that's if that if those words make sense, because the words are never quite accurate or sufficient. Is that is that at all responsive? Yeah, a- absolutely. Um, <laughs> okay. No, it it actually makes a lot of sense, especially your analogy about uh, washing dishes. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Goodness. Anything that you do mindfully and focused and sincerely and intentionally and deeply and so forth is and that and that and it has this rich other it's richer than washing dishes <laughs> jerry well thank you very much for the talk what struck me is how happy it, it you were or how joyful it was to to and it's it's uh, as a practice, it's it would be a very that's what I was thinking. It's such a joyful, happy way to practice. With yeah, the, yeah, that's the, a really good point. It was such a grim year. A little bit of focus on a dripping maple tree icicle <laughs> really helpful, <laughs> and those gorgeous turtles. You know, <laughs> they didn't. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Is joy? What a concept! <laughs> Tygen, you're back. Can you hear me? Is that it? <clears throat> I see your square Can lighting you up. Me? Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, thank you for reading those. I mean. For me, to some on some level, what, what they do is they trigger sight. They trigger and, what? Um, which is seeing sight, the sight. visual experience of seeing something. Where you know where where which is which is apparently a very a relatively rare thing, because as you had suggested, we're drawn to see the familiar or the the immediately transactional or or useful. And we lose our sight. And so the haiku form, by bringing what is not maybe apparently or obviously transactional together into a single experience, we see again. I see again. So I, I enjoyed the ones that you had selected reading. And I enjoyed the two that you had composed. 
Thank you. Uh, thanks, Ed. And I would say uh, not just sight, but also smell and hearing and you know, all of our senses. You know, we're sort of in these ruts. We're in these sensory ruts where we just sort of see what we're used to seeing. And we, you know, we have our little repertoire. It's nice to expand that. There's so much more than that. I'm always interested in what my cat is investigating. You know, it's like, oh, what what are you finding over there? Must must be through your nose, which mine is not as good as yours. <laughs> Let me check that out. Tygen, did you find something to share with us? Uh, yes, I did. Uh, can you hear me? Yes. Um, so this is a book called Winter, no, Temple Dusk uh, by Mitsu Suzuki. Um, who lived for decades at San Francisco Zen Center City Center and really helped us after Suzuki Roshi left. And I thought that she wrote in English, but I guess not. These are, this was published by Parallax Press, um, and they're translated by my friends, Kaz Tanahashi and Gregory Wood. And so I'm just opening and reading at random. Um, uh, let me see. Spring loneliness, night mist embraces the stupa soundlessly. Winter rain garden, view deepening, one stone. Zen temple, the sound of brooms becomes wintry. I could just keep reading little bits of these, but filled glittering cherry tree, clear voices chanting. So anyway, this is available temple dusk and, and it's, they're wonderful. Uh, part of it is, as Ed was saying, there's a scene or some, some, as you were saying also, Kirshen, there's some, something that appears in nature. And then, Part of it is that the haiku turns it in some way or opens it up in some way. So uh, maybe I'll just read a couple more. Dusk surrounds the canyon. The wooden mallets clack, signal zazen. So this was in autumn 1973 at Tassajara, but that's about the Han sound. Um, autumn yeah, cow. One more. Autumn cloud, as if it knew my life alone. Anyway, there's she is, uh, the book is called Temple Dusk, and it's lovely. There, there's one famous one. I'm trying to remember. It's it's about the bell ringing, and I, it's not hers. I don't remember whose it is, but the bell ringing and tolling our life away, or something like that. It's like. Oh yeah, <laughs> we are all familiar with bells ringing. Um, yeah, it's I don't know. It's an interesting adventure. <laughs> Hi, Mike. Hold on, please. Hello. Um, thank you for your your talk. It was. Um, I, I agree with Jerry. Yeah, it was. It was so nice to see you light up as you were talking about everything. Um, you can definitely see the joy. Um, uh, I enjoyed what you were talking about earlier with 
uh, with Wade's question about making it like a spiritual practice. Um, about a year ago, I started uh, doing an Enzo practice, um, like making Enzos. Um, to I, not achieve, but like kind of for a similar reason, I guess, to kind of have some kind of artistic mm-hmm. um, connection to like a spiritual practice. I think I was looking for something creative to do. Um, and I've definitely been intrigued by what you're talking about because I think I, I'd love to hear anyone else talk about Enzo's. Cause like for me, I enjoy making them and I enjoy the process. And then kind of after the fact, um, they leave something to be desired or as, I don't know, maybe I'm thinking about like comparing it to the haiku where there's a lot more specificity and richness that I can get, but maybe that's just cause it's language and it ends up as a circle. So, but I'd be curious to hear about that and but it, it reminded me of that so can i just ask a question when you say leave something to be desired are you saying you know you want to keep making more i do yeah um i mean yeah, it's like I, you're never done because they're never there's no way for them to be done so yeah it, it becomes an endless <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and I find too that like um I don't often go back and look at them once I've made them. Uh-huh. Um I don't know if I should or like I like when I have sometimes I don't know what to look for. So, I don't know. Yeah. So there's not an editing. That's a different from uh haiku cuz there's this editing process which is interesting. Um, yeah, I guess with something like that, I mean, you don't want to make it precious, right? That sort of defeats the whole purpose. On the other hand, they're beautiful. (laughs) That's interesting. You should do a Dharma talk about your Enzo practice. (laughs) I'd be be interested in that. (laughs) I I think Kaz Tanahashi has a book called Enzo with different Enzo, but one of the things about Enso is it's one stroke. Yeah. You know, and yeah, and he, Kaz, was... he, he did a whole book about one stroke paintings. He does a lot of his landscapes. The the ones that um the ones that were in the in the big walls in the Zendo were mm-hmm. all one stroke. Yeah, he was the one who inspired me to I was inspired by him to start the practice actually. Um and I I feel like in a, an earlier Dharma talk, someone mentioned a documentary about him because um, he makes like very large ones for like um, artistic commissions or things like that. And they're multi-layers. Yeah, there's these big brushes. Yeah, like five <laughs> brushes at once. It's like yeah. Six. Yeah. yeah, it was very interesting. I have a request. Uh, Laurel, could you read a couple more of your haiku for us, please? Oh, uh, okay. Well, you talk amongst yourself. I'll have to go. I, I, I have if to go. Not, if it's if <laughs> if it's too difficult, that's okay. But yeah, I, I don't. There, there. I, I. So I'll just say so that if you. This this is like a very surprising thing to me. Or not surprising, but it, it wasn't sort of what I pictured. I sort of imagined, oh, I'll do this. Oh, I'll spend a half an hour writing a haiku. But as I'm following the instructions of all these teachers, I'm basically, so you have this season word, whatever it is. And then you sit there and you write like 30 
in a half an hour or even more because they're so short and uh, and they're sort of repetitive and they're, you know, whatever. But I'm trying to follow this advice that I just read to you from Natalie Goldberg, which is sort of saying what every other person says as well, you know, get it all out. And uh, so I have so many, uh, like, <laughs> like my desktop is covered with these things, you know, there's like, it'll say turtles, and then there'll be like 50 things with turtles. <laughs> Another one will be, you know, icicles or inchworms or whatever. Um, so there are so many. I can't, I haven't gotten, I'm still such a novice that uh, I don't quite know how to deal with this. Do I like select a few and then hold on to those and throw away the rest or whatever? Anyway, I'm just exploring. But uh, I'll send you some, uh, Tygen. They're, they're, um, the ones I read are pretty typical. They're, 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 they're definitely based on exact experience I had. And of course you don't have that many insights every day. I mean, it's not, like, <laughs> it's not, it's not like we're constantly coming to new understandings about everything. So some of them are a little bland, but I, I wrote, Oh, I went to hear the prairie chickens dancing. Oh, can I remember this one by heart? Oh, it was my favorite one I wrote. Why didn't I include that in the talk? Um, sunrise, moonset sky. Because we were out there and the sun was rising on one side and the moon was setting on the other side. Sunrise, moonset sky. And the last line is prairie chickens dancing. And what was the middle line? Oh, anyway, that's, I'm sorry. <laughs> Pathetic. Uh, so, um, so should I put this on the website? I mean, on the, on the calendar and say anyone who's interested should contact me so they understand what it's about. Cause obviously there's only 10 people here and if, uh, other people might decide. Can I do that? Can I just like put my email or something? So don't just sign up, talk to me. So, I mean, I, anyone can come if they want to do it. I just want them to know what they're getting into. Asian is already signed up. She's brilliant. She does them at the drop of the hat about anything. She's like a, uh, it's like a party trick for her. You just give her a thing and she like comes up with a haiku in a minute. <laughs> So maybe we'll do it at camping session. Uh, I think, Laurel, I think it would be great to have an ancient dragon haiku club, whatever. And uh, yeah, please um, put it, put it together in an in an announcement. And uh, Mike, is it okay if she sends it to you to post? Right. Okay. Okay. Are we done? Oh, wait. Yes. Well, I was just on that on that note. I don't know if um, you would be interested in having any of those posted on social media, but I think the people that follow us would be very interested. Oh, to, oh. 
some some of yours or um oh yeah i can send you some that's a good idea oh yeah i'd be happy to send you some of mine and then we can once we get people doing it we can put other people's yeah that would be great i mean it would be awesome to have uh you know 10 haikus from people in the sangha using the same word or something like that yeah that would be really great i don't know the uh legality of putting other people's like I don't know if we could put Richard Wright's on there, for example, it's probably copyrighted or whatever. So some of the stuff that I read is probably we couldn't use because I just. But uh, you you anyway. should you should be able to post that. Um, oh really? I I think that would be okay. If we credited credited the book and stuff. Yeah, you couldn't you couldn't post the whole book, but if oh. you want to post one or two from a book, that should be that should okay. Be. So we can do the we can do the frog one, <laughs> so what everybody knows. Certainly, we can post um, ancient dragon people haikus yeah. as long as they are willing. Yeah. Okay, maybe we're done. Oh, uh, Ian. Hi, Gyoshin. I had a question about um, fear in the creative practice and how to move through that I guess like if you're afraid of like it not being good enough yeah everyone's afraid of it not being good enough it's so crazy um um I mean it's like stage fright right it's a version of stage fright it's exposing exposing something intimate and um, worrying about judgment, I guess. Um, I don't know. I mean, that's so universally human. Um, My only uh, personal approach to that is to just Bite the bullet or whatever the non-martial version of that is. If you bite something that's not a bullet, uh, uh, you know, just like tough it. It's, um, you know, what's the worst thing that could happen? Is the question I ask myself. I mean, something, I guess you could be embarrassed or like yeah, Co, do you have a better answer than me? That would be so great. <laughs> I don't know that it's better, but I do have an experience to share. Um, I, I had a teacher who assigned us like, um, it was a six-month haiku assignment. Oh. And he wrote three haiku a day, and she called them plu-bouts. So you do one before you were public. When you first wake up, before you make any contact, and one at the very end of the day, and one right at the middle. And what she would have us do is just inhale and then just anything, which is write. And it doesn't, you don't even count syllables. And you do six days a week of writing the haiku. And then a separate day is the editing. So to separate the creative mind from the judgmental editing mind is a really useful, I found very useful. So don't, when you're doing creative, don't revise. Just let it come. And then hook in that later no that that's that's the that is uh the advice for every artist because 
it's different parts of your brain and you got to plug into the magic and not judge it to get anything even remotely I don't want to say original, whatever you want to call it. And then later you have to be sure your editor is, your editor has enough uh, imagination to accept your (laughs) most interesting thoughts. (laughs) But yeah, that's, that's really good advice, Ko. Uh, it's, you know, it's not entirely different from being in the world, right? I mean, we're all worried about being judged all the time, not just on our artwork, but on our thinking and our, you know, <laughs> our social graces and so forth. It just takes a lot to um, be okay with that. It's hard. Thanks for the question, Ian. But I've seen you perform on Zoom here. You seem to, with your music. I mean, I think once you've done something for a long time and you're comfortable, it's a little easier. Yeah. But you're still like you're still like constantly judging yourself. So like, okay, well, if I do it again, I do this thing right, right, different, this different. That you know, it doesn't really end. It's just you just kind of get a little braver, I guess. But if you read any of the journals of anyone brilliant, like, you know, I don't know, Shakespeare didn't write journals, but if he did, he probably worried about whether people liked his stuff, you know, <laughs> just the way we are. <laughs> I wonder if my language is interesting, he must have said to himself. <laughs> I saw Jerry's hand up. I don't know if you still want to. I was just going to say that I know the first time, the only time I gave a talk, um, I was absolutely terrified. And um, partly I think it the, the, that sense of fear almost helped because it sort of focused me and, you know, that, okay, you better like focus here. So, and, and, and in a sense that, that sense of, okay, is it going to be good enough was, it was a plus in a way because it, a it helped me to focus and B somehow the fact that I was worried about it made me think, okay, you're going to do a better job. So you don't screw this up somehow. I don't know, but it, somehow it, it, as much as it felt uncomfortable, it was useful, I guess is what I want to say. It was a great talk. It was. <laughs> Yeah, I kind of get that a lot, and, and and I'm not sure what to do with that. But yeah, I, I, I guess it was. I don't know, but I, I I did find I did find the stress over extremely useful. That's what I wanted to say. Mike, just a short final thought, um, but I was riffing on what everyone else was saying. Um, I, I used to do theater for years. Um, and we would always we'd always pray and hope that the dress rehearsal before our first performance was terrible. <laughs> because if the dress rehearsal was terrible, you would have the show for that reason, because then you would focus and it would be great. So it reminded me of that. Right. Yeah, that's funny. The theater people have so many things that they... 
think are magic tricks to make things go well because it's so dangerous, right? It's right in the moment. And if, if it goes bad, that's it. Everyone's there. All the time, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, are we done? <laughs> Seems like we are. Do we do the four vows? Ian, would you? Deems are numberless. I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to realize it. Beings are numberless. I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to realize it. Beings are numberless. I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to realize it.